It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of March 30th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Leapin' Leopards. All right, so Little Orphan Annie actually used the term Leapin' Lizards. But I suspect that somewhere along the line, somebody has already uttered the term Leapin' Leopards. At least they've used it in relation to reviewing Apple's OS X 10.5 Leopard. I would have used it myself earlier, but I wanted to wait until the point two step release was out. OS X is now 10.5.2. One thing that Leopard has proven is that Mac owners, even though they are fiercely loyal, aren't exactly shy about trashing Apple when they think that something doesn't work the way they believe it should. Based on some of the letters to Macworld and Mac Life, one might easily think that this is the worst operating system ever. It's even been compared to Vista. Maybe I owe you a bit of a backstory first. At least I owe that backstory to people who don't have nearly 20 years' worth of history with Technology Corner on the radio. Until 2001, I had never owned a Mac. I had seen them, and I didn't really think much of the operating system. When I bought a Mac, it was once Apple had released OS X. It was 10.0 at the time. The machine was also capable of running the last version of the old operating system, System 9. The promise of OS X was clear, although not actually realized in 10.0. That came later when 10.1 was released, the first really operational version of the operating system. But it was immediately clear to me that Windows 98 was a far better operating system than System 9. I am still mainly a Windows user but subsequent versions of Apple's OS X have convinced me that Apple, once again, has the most innovative operating system. So that's the prism through which I view Apple and OS X. One of the biggest complaints from users seems to be that with Leopard, Apple no longer supports any System 9 applications. So what? The last version of System 9 was released eight years ago. Is it really such a big deal that your applications from the last century no longer work on the latest Macs? Now, it is true that Microsoft's operating systems can still run some old DOS applications from the 1980s, but maintaining that ability has been costly. Sometimes a clean break is better. Some Mac users even sound like frustrated Windows users, saying that the various magazines are nothing but shills for Apple, that there are disastrous consequences of installing Leopard, or that they will never again install a new operating system until it's been out for a year. What's going on here? Now, I don't doubt that some people have had serious problems with Leopard. I thought one system security update had actually killed the operating system because the computer seemed to have become unresponsive, and Apple doesn't believe in providing feedback about disk access by using lights. As it turned out, the computer was actually working really hard. I just couldn't see any evidence of it. Anytime you upgrade an operating system, whether it's Windows, Mac, or Unix, or Linux, there is an opportunity for disaster. So I don't doubt there have been problems. I haven't seen any myself, except for that one false scare. 
and I am enjoying Leopard and its 300 new features. 300? Uh, That might be just a bit of Apple hyperbole. If you look at the list, you'll find, tucked in among them, the ability to watch movie previews. That's a new feature. There's iChat's multiple login, so you can use multiple chat sessions. Okay, so they just caught up with third-party chat clients that have been doing that for years. Russian, Polish, and Portuguese localization. Well, those would be big features in Russia, Poland, and Portugal. Not so important in the U.S. And then there are half a dozen new screensavers, not quite worth stopping the presses for. Still, that doesn't mean the features are useless. They are, however, overshadowed by changes and additions that are more visible, more useful, or both. Apple calls Leopard the largest update ever of the Mac OS X. Although it supports both PowerPC processors and Intel processors, support for the G3 processor has been dropped. The most important new features include an updated Finder, Time Machine, Spaces, Boot Camp installed by default, and support for 64-bit applications, also some new security features. So probably the most important new feature is Leopard's Time Machine. That's a way to back up the computer without having to learn how to use a complicated backup program. The operating system journals every change on the disk so that you'll have access to earlier versions of your work. If you make a change to a file and decide you prefer the original, you can get the original back. Time Machine can also back up files to a network drive in addition to external local hard drives. And if you use this, you are going to need an additional hard drive. It chews up a lot of space. Speaking of space, Spaces. That's a feature you will love or loathe. If you've used a Linux machine, you might love Spaces because the paradigm is going to be familiar to you. No matter how large your screen, it gets crowded if you have a dozen or more applications open. Spaces allow you to create four virtual desktops, then switch between them at will. You can zoom out to see all four, then drag an application from one to the other. But there is irony here. Apple fanatics like to accuse Microsoft of copying Apple's original work. They do that by conveniently forgetting that both Apple and Microsoft copied work done by the Palo Alto Research Center. But here, Apple fails to give credit to Linux for originating spaces. And there is Spotlight. Some reviewers say it looks a lot like Windows Search. I would never consider saying something like that myself, of course. Spotlight is now able to search other Mac client and workgroup servers. Vista SP1 will add that capability to Windows. Spotlight has advanced search features like <clears throat> like Windows Search, and it's able to launch applications the way Vista's search feature can, but it's not at all like Windows Search, trust me. Then there's also built-in boot camp. Good idea. I can't use the feature because I don't have a Mac that runs on an Intel processor. But if you do, this is a great feature. It's a wise move on Apple's part. This could convince people who would otherwise buy a Windows computer to try a Mac because a Mac with boot camp will allow them to run Windows applications and Windows is still the dominant player on the desktop. Apple is chipping away at that lead. Some vociferous Apple users grumbled a lot about Leopard, and Apple listened to the complaints. Version 10.5.2, the recently released update, 
addresses most of the legitimate complaints. For example, ever notice how minor features sometimes become major objects of contention? Stacks is one of those. For years, I've complained about the Mac's lack of a start menu, which I consider to be a simple and easy way to arrange links to start programs. I think Microsoft did that exactly right. Stacks makes it possible to create a faux start menu and also to do things that the start menu can't do. The problem, though, according to some users, is that there weren't enough ways to display stacks. Well, I was just happy they existed. But in version 10.5.2, users can display stacks as a fan. That's the default, where any application in the folder simply fans out across the screen. There's a limited number of items you can put in the folder in that case. You can also display the stack as a grid or a list. So everybody wins. It seems to me that the ability to create tabs within the console, that's the command line for Leopard, is new with this version. You can even color code multiple sessions within the console. The console provides access to the Unix shell. That's behind the scenes powerhouse that runs applications. The shell is what gives user the ability to use Unix's most powerful features. And now you can even make the console session transparent. That's kind of cool. It may not be terribly useful, but it is cool. Windows fanatics are going to consider this a cheap shot. All of Leopard's graphical abilities are available on any Mac that is capable of running Leopard. That's unlike Vista, for which Arrow is not available on many machines, even though they are promoted as being Vista-capable. But you've heard that story before. The bottom line for Apple's OS X 10.5.2 Leopard is five cats. I didn't see most of the problems that Apple's core users complained about, but the Mac isn't currently my primary computing platform. You may have noted that I just used the word currently and wonder if I mean something by that. Well, indeed I do. Here's what I mean. The next computer I buy may be a Mac that has Windows installed for those times when I need to use an application that's available only for Windows. We'll see. And if you are a Mac user, you get a huge choice of web browsers. Microsoft hasn't made browsers for Mac since version 5.2, and that's a long time ago. Mac users really don't care much about that deficiency. They have the built-in Safari, which does have some security problems even on the Mac, and Firefox, of course. There are some specialty browsers like Flock and several Mozilla alternates for those who don't like Firefox. If you feel that Firefox includes too much stuff, you can choose a minimalist browser such as Safari or Sunrise. And if you want more stuff, well, take a look at Flock. Here's a quick review of the primary free browsers available for the Mac. I've omitted any paid browsers and browsers that are no longer currently being developed. And on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see screen captures of each of the browsers. There is Camino 1.5, universal binary that runs natively on both PowerPC and Intel-based Macs. Camino combines the visual and behavioral experience that's been central to the Macintosh philosophy with the web browsing capabilities of the Gecko rendering engine. Camino is the result of efforts by thousands of volunteers. This is a browser that's available only on the Mac. 
Well, there's Firefox, of course. It offers security and add-ins that make the interface whatever you want it to be. My favorite browser, wherever I am. Security features include active protection from online scams, and now there are more than 1,000 add-ons that enhance Firefox. Firefox is available for Macs, Windows, and Linux machines. There's Flock. How to describe Flock? Well, a Flock user quoted on the browser's homepage put it this way, Flock is like the mutant love child of Safari and Firefox, dipped in some weird Web 2.0 chemicals and sprinkled with Twitter dust. Did that help? It's a browser with a crowded interface, but it does take social networking to a new level. Mac, Windows, and Linux users can use Flock. Opera offers safety, security, and the ability to customize the interface, although not quite as much as Firefox. Opera was the pioneer that developed tabbed browsing in 2000, long before other browsers offered what I consider to be an essential feature. Speed Dial makes it easy to get to the sites that you use the most. And Opera has, from its beginning been the most standards-compliant browser out there. Mac, Windows, and Linux users can use Opera. Safari. This is the default for Macs. It's also available for Windows, although the Windows version is flawed. It is still a pretty good choice for Mac users. And then there's Sunrise. Open-source web browser uses the same rendering engine as Safari. It's based on WebKit framework for Mac. Sunrise is from Japan. It's small, clean, and fast. Mac users only, please. Not available for other platforms. I'm not quite sure how this next segment relates to technology, although it does involve an email I received. Occasionally, I think of a teacher I had in high school. He taught freshman biology. I recall doing all the usual stuff that freshman biology classes do, collect butterflies, write reports, all that stuff. But the class had a component that dealt with critical thinking, wasn't part of the class, and it wasn't presented that way, of course, and it was just this one teacher's effort to make us think. And of course, you couldn't do anything like that today, because then you wouldn't be teaching students what they need to pass the test. But I remember this man's class and his name 45 years later. The class gave me skills that are useful in debunking urban legends, or at least having the common sense to check when something doesn't seem quite right. And it also helps when I deconstruct spams that play on some people's unwillingness to think. Unfortunately, many schools no longer bother with critical thinking. There just isn't time to teach it. And in the long term, that's going to make life a lot easier for spammers and demagogues those people that H.L. Mencken defined as those who will preach doctrines they know to be untrue to men they know to be idiots. Mencken didn't mince words, but he was correct. The volume of spam and the quality of the spam illustrates his point. Well, first, the quantity. I recently set up a separate Gmail account and directed all of my email to it. It still comes to my regular account, and it still gets processed by my standard spam filters. But the flow to Gmail was upstream from all the spam filtering, so everything that came to me reached the Gmail account. Gmail does a pretty good job of identifying spam, but probably about 10% of the 600 messages Gmail thought were legitimate during a one-week test were actually spam. Gmail also accurately identified during that one-week period more than 1,600 spams. 
I'm guessing that my monthly spam count will be about 6,000 messages. 6,000 spams in a month. You've undoubtedly seen spams for diplomas from prestigious non-accredited universities. Apparently that wording is designed to appeal to people who don't exactly understand the meaning of words. The statement clearly says you'll receive nothing more than a worthless piece of paper. But then, what is a diploma after all? It's essentially a worthless piece of paper. It's not the paper that's important. It's the knowledge behind the piece of paper. And this message offering me a diploma from a prestigious non-accredited university had a subject line that said, Is your skills about to expired? Here's an opportunity to discuss critical thinking with you. I received an email from a correspondent, one of those forwards of a forward of a forward of a forward of a forward. It contained a lot of email addresses, a lot of them. Ever notice that the most clueless forwards seem to come from people who can't figure out how to strip out all the junk when they forward a message? That's a topic for another time. Here's what the alarming message told me. VIN number. Okay, first of all, let's stop right there. VIN number is redundant. VIN is vehicle identification number. So a VIN number is a vehicle identification number number. That's like the DMZ zone or the Rio Grande River. But I guess people who can't even figure out how to check an email for veracity probably don't have the mental capacity to recognize redundancy either. So here's the message. Here is info worth the price of your car. What will the car thieves think of next? Oh my, I'm so worried. Car thieves peer through the windshield of your car or truck, write down the VIN number, redundantly, from the label on the dash, go to the local car dealership, and request a duplicate key based on the VIN number. I didn't believe this email, so I called Chrysler Dodge and pretended I had lost my keys. They told me to just bring in the VIN number, and they would cut me one on the spot, and I could order the keyless device if I wanted The car dealer's parts department will make a duplicate key from the VIN number and collect payment from the thief who will return to your car. He doesn't have to break in, do any damage to the vehicle, or draw attention to himself. All he has to do is walk up to your car, insert the key, and off he goes to a local chop shop with your vehicle. You don't believe it? It is that easy. To avoid this from happening to you, simply put some tape, electrical tape, duct tape, or medical tape, across the VIN metal label located on the dashboard. By law, you cannot remove the VIN, but you can cover it so that it can't be viewed through the windshield by a car thief. I urge you to forward this to your friends before some other car thief steals another car or truck. I slipped a 3x5 card over the VIN number. Pass this information on to all your family and friends. Well, that's absurd. Why should anyone be surprised that an auto dealer can make a key once they have the VIN? If you lose your car keys, what would you expect to do? I would go to the car dealer, give them the VIN, which they would probably have on record if they sold me the car, and have them cut me a key. But the message is even more absurd on another level. Think about car thieves. I wrote back to the correspondent with this brief question. Does anybody really think that a car thief would do something this elaborate just to steal a car? I certainly don't. Well, a few minutes later, my correspondent replied. I was told that the message had come from a retired music teacher. Maybe retired music teachers have a special knowledge about car thieves? I'm not quite sure how that fit into the importance of the message. And the person who had sent me the message said that she would check with a guy from Chrysler later in the week. 
I never did hear how that conversation went. Here's where critical thinking comes in. Understanding the difference between can and will. It's not a question of whether a car thief can obtain a key in the manner described, but whether the thief will do it. Of course it can happen. But the average car thief wants the car for use in a chop shop, and he won't particularly care if he has to mangle the ignition a bit. Now, keep in mind the average car thief can get into a car in about 15 seconds using a Slim Jim tool. That's the same thing that a lot of police officers carry around to help people who've locked themselves out of their cars. And a Slim Jim causes no damage to the car. Additionally, many new cars use special keys that may cost 150 to $300 to replace because they have logic circuits built into the key. So what car thief is going to spot a car, get the VIN, go to a dealership, drop $200 or even $10 if it's a regular key, wait for the dealer's parts department to make the key, and hope the car is still there when he gets back? This is simply not logical. And regardless of the fact that most car thieves aren't too bright, otherwise they wouldn't be in that line of work, most of them are at least bright enough to see this as a pretty unintelligent way of going about their task. Now, the car might be stolen by a joyrider, of course, but if somebody's looking for a joyride, they're just going to smash the window. Can you imagine some kid taking a VIN to the dealer to get a replacement key? Possible, sure. But likely? The warning that was forwarded me is simply a bit of needless scaremongering that gets people all worked up about something that has virtually no chance of happening in the real world. I suspect that you are much more likely to be struck by lightning than to have your car stolen this way. It's time to shoot some fish in a barrel. That's a thought that came to mind when I took a look at this week's stupid spam of the week. The sender seems, at best, to have kind of a tenuous understanding of commerce as it relates to scams. This scam depends on the potential victims having recently signed up for Google's AdWords service. If the receiver hasn't done that, the receiver is going to recognize in an instant that it's somebody trying to make a fast buck at his expense. The message begins with, Dear Google AdWords Customer! Exclamation point. In order to update your billing information, please sign into your AdWords account and here they provide an address, and update your billing information. A bit of circular logic there. In order to update your billing information, sign in and update your billing information. Well, the message told me the account will be reactivated as soon as I have entered my payment details. My ads will show immediately if I decide to pay for clicks via credit or debit card, but if I decide to pay by direct debit, Google may need to wait until they receive the signed debit authorization, depending on the location, of course. If I choose bank transfer, the ads will show up as soon as they receive my first payment. Payment options vary by location. Make sure you check out the website this week, www.techbiter.com. There you'll see a screen capture of the message itself. Google is a highly visual company. It's hard to imagine that they would send out a message so plain and ugly for anything. But the real giveaway, of course, is the link, which won't take you to Google. The link is for adwords.google.com.fr4ck.cn. CN, of course, is China. As a reminder, Google is located in Mountain View, California, just up the road from San Jose. Uh, in fairness to the scammer spammer, I should probably note that Google does have three offices in China. It is, however, somewhat unlikely that any one of them uses fr4ck.cn to record AdWords accounting data. 
This domain is registered to GFDTHY. Looks like random letters to me. And the registrant name is a bit longer, but it's H-R-T-H-H-T-F-H-R-T-H. More random letters. Oh, and by the way, following a trace route, I discovered that the website, which claims to be in China, is actually hosted on a server in Romania. In nerdly news, a bit of a problem for Netflix. We're sorry. The message from Netflix began. As you may have heard, our shipping system was unexpectedly down for most of Monday. We should have shipped your DVDs, but we were unable to. Your DVDs were shipped today, Tuesday, March 25th, instead. We're sorry for any inconvenience this has caused. Netflix says it will issue a 5% credit to the accounts of those affected by the outage. Many of Netflix's 7.5 million members watch their DVDs on the weekend and return them on Mondays. The outage affected people who were expecting to receive shipments on Tuesday. Company spokesman Steve Swassey said only that the outage was unanticipated. He declined to explain what caused it. He said the company felt the 5% credit was simply the right thing to do. But at the same time, Netflix shares hit a 52-week low this week, and Netflix reported its first quarterly customer losses in history. Netflix is reducing monthly subscription fees on some of its more popular plans. They will be matching Blockbuster's rates. Motorola has been under pressure from investors and is now giving in. The company will split into two divisions. One will handle handsets and accessories, the other wireless broadband networks and enterprise communications services. You might wonder why this is happening. Well, the mobile devices division generated a lot of sales in 2007, but on those sales it lost $1.2 billion and it lost market share. The mobile devices loss nearly wiped out profits from the company's other divisions. Mobile devices business will market mobile handsets and accessories. It will also be able to license intellectual property that it owns. The Broadband and Mobility Solutions Division will be responsible for developing and selling voice and data communications solutions. They will also have wireless broadband networks for enterprises and governments. Insiders suggest that separating the cell phone business might make it possible for Motorola to partner with foreign companies that wanted entry into the U.S. market. Motorola has lost a lot of its market share to companies such as Nokia and Samsung over the past few years. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of March 30th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Don't forget, check out the website www.techbiter.com, and you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.